I have to say that's a hard act to follow. <laughs> Very hard act to follow, especially since, um, well, let's just say the scripture passage that we're going to read today is far from upbeat. Um, this summer, we're taking a look at uh, the writings of several Old Testament prophets. It's a little bit different this time. Uh, the words of these men, which make up nearly a third of the Old Testament, influence the work of Jesus and of the church, so much so that we still refer to them every time we say the great thanksgiving, the prayer um, before Holy Communion. You may recall that after the initial greeting, there is a time when I walk through uh, some of God's work in human history, including these words, you formed us in your image and breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. You delivered us from captivity, made, sovereign to be, made covenant to be our sovereign God, and spoke to us through the prophets. Despite their importance, however, we rarely uh, read what the prophets have to say, and I think that perhaps it is time that we did, for they continue to speak to us through God's word. Before um, Brad reads the scripture, I want to give you a little background on the prophets. Um, in our scripture, the prophets are divided into two main categories by their length. The names of the longer books, the major prophets, will probably sound very familiar to you. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Unless you memorize the book of the Bibles in Sunday school and still remember them, however, you may be less familiar with the names of the 12 so-called minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Anybody ever heard of Habakkuk before? I didn't think so. <laughs> we just don't look at them very often. So in contrast to Elijah and Elijah, we've heard about them the last few weeks, whose colorful stories are found in the books of First and Second Kings, the major and minor prophets did not work miracles, and their writings preserve very little biographical information about them. Yet, like Elijah and Elijah, these men were not fortune tellers or soothsayers. On the contrary, they were astute observers who sought to interpret God's words and actions for their times. They strove to bring their wayward people back to God and dared to speak truth to power, even though they themselves were often grieved by the words of judgment that they felt compelled to speak. One such prophet was Amos, whom we, whose words we will read today and next week. Amos lived in the 8th century B.C. and was thought to prophesy around 750 B.C., during the period when Uzziah was king in Judah and Jeroboam II ruled Israel. And here I should explain that after the death of King Solomon, a rebellion caused the nation of Israel to split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital was the city of Samaria, and the smaller southern kingdom of Judah, whose capital was Jerusalem. As you will hear, Amos grew up in Judah and made his living as a herdsman and dresser of trees in his home village of Tekoa, located about five miles away from Bethlehem. Despite his origins, he felt a strong call to prophesy in the northern kingdom of Israel, specifically at the shrine at Bethel. 
His purpose was to warn a recalcitrant Israel that a time of reckoning had come. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought out out of the land of Egypt. You alone have I known of all the families of earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Today we are reading the third of five visions of Amos that are found in chapters 7 through 9, visions in which he describes what the Lord God showed me, images of judgment to come. The first and second images are of a devastating plague of locusts and a heat wave that causes a terrible drought. Now, for us, such events are simply natural disasters, but the prophets saw them as signs of God's judgment. The images so terrify Amos that he pleads for his people, O Lord God, forgive, I beg you. How can Jacob, another name for Israel, stand? He is so small. And in both cases, God relents. The third vision, however, is different. Let's listen to Brad. Amos chapter 7. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, see, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be, be laid waste. And I will rise in the house of Jeroboam with a sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to King Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. And Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away from this land of Judah, earn your bread there, and... Prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered Amaziah, I am no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman, a dresser of sycamore trees, and the Lord took me from the following flock, and the, from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. <clears throat> now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You say, you say, do not prophesy against Israel and do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall become a prostitute in the city and your sons and your daughters shall fall by the sword and your land shall be parceled out by line and you yourself shall die in an unclean land and Israel shall surely go into exile away from its land. The word of God, the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Maybe. <laughs> Let me ask now, can you hear? Everybody in the back can hear? So I know we've had some issues with that. Okay, just making sure. All right. Amos sees God holding a plumb line next to a wall. Plumb line is a very basic construction tool consisting of a symmetrical weight called a plumb bob or plummet attached to a strong string. And you can actually see a picture of one on the cover of your bulletin. 
When held up to a wall, it provides a builder with the means of determining how vertically straight or plumb the wall is. Basically, the top of the string is held to a mark on the wall, and when the plumb bob at the bottom comes to rest, another mark is made as the bottom, and the resulting plumb line between those two marks will be perfectly vertical. To use a plumb line is important because the weight of an out-of-plumb wall is off-center, which creates added stress, stress which may cause the wall to collapse. This ancient tool is still very much in use today. As a matter of fact, you can buy plumb bobs on Amazon just in case you feel the need. In Amos' vision, however, God's plumb line acts not as a tool of construction, but as a sign of God's judgment against a very crooked Israel. Amos believes that his people have incurred God's wrath because of their treatment of the poor and needy. He cries out against the social, political, and religious structures that fail to promote righteousness and justice and rails against those who trample the, poor, the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way. Furthermore, Amos declares, the worship of God has become nothing more than empty ritual. In the most famous passage of the book, which is found in three, I believe, uh, God speaks in words that cut to the quick. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of the well-being of the fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Though it is a time of relative peace and prosperity in the kingdom of Israel, Amos sees that both its people and its institutions are out of plumb with God's will for their communal life. God's patience has come to an end, and with terrifying finality, Amos declares God's judgments on his people. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. The words pass by serve to translate the Hebrew word abar. According to Elsa Solvang, this word is used in two different ways in scripture to describe the act of overlooking or forgiving sin and to signal God's intimate presence. This double meaning heightens the significance of God's word. God will not only withhold forgiveness from his people, God will withhold God's very self. This is a devastating message, made all the more so because Amos dares to proclaim it at one of the sanctuaries of Israel, the shrine at Bethel. Needless to say, neither the message nor the messenger are well received. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, files a complaint with Jeroboam, accusing Amos of conspiring against his king, and then confronts Amos himself with words that sound all too familiar. Go back to where you came from. In so doing, Amaziah reveals his primary commitment is not to God, but to the state, 
and that he intends to maintain the institution at all costs. O seer, go flee away to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. The king's sanctuary? The temple of the kingdom? What should have been God's sanctuary... God's temple has been acclaimed by the king for his own purposes, and this corruption is clearly supported by the religious establishment. Amos protests that he is not, as Amaziah suggests, a professional prophet who makes a living through his skill. On the contrary, God called him to prophesy in a land far from his home. In response to Amaziah's words, Amos proclaims God's further judgment. Not only will Israel's religious sites be destroyed and the king face the sword, but Amaziah will see his family devastated and Israel will surely go into exile away from its land. Though we don't know what actually happened to Amaziah, Amos' prophecy at Israel against Israel will be fulfilled some 30 years later when the northern kingdom of Israel is utterly destroyed by the Assyrian Empire in 722-721 B.C. So all that was centuries ago. And other than offering an interesting lesson in Jewish history, what do the words of Amos mean to Christians? What has Amos to do with us in 2019 in El Segundo, California? I think that, first of all, we might try reading Amos as if he is speaking to us today instead of to the people of Israel 2,700 years ago. To do so is disturbing, to say the least, and I know that our inclination would be much the same as that of the priest Amaziah, go bother someone else. We don't take well to outsiders who critique our church. But ha perhaps more disturbing is the idea of a God who judges. I know I'm not comfortable with that. You've heard me say many times, God loves you no matter what, and I believe that with all my heart. But I also believe in a God who is righteous, who seeks to work justice in our world, especially for those most vulnerable, and who is grieved, even angered, when greed overrides compassion and power circumvents justice. I have to admit that in my mind, anyway, those two concepts of God sometimes seem mutually exclusive. How could a loving God bring about the utter destruction of his people, Israel? And how could a God of justice not condemn those who desire for power and personal gain, lead them to ignore the needs of others? I'm afraid I don't have a satisfactory answer to that dilemma. What I choose to believe is that God's judgment is like that of a loving parent, not merely punitive but redemptive in nature, that God seeks not just to punish but to set things right. I find the words of Professor Willis Jenkins in his commentary on this passage to be particularly helpful. He writes, In modern life, most of us just want to be left alone. 
left to our own devices to live our lives as we please, immune from judgments on our lives that are not exclusively self-derived. But the God of Israel will not leave us alone. God comes to, comes to us sometimes through the words of a prophet like Amos, loving us enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. He goes on. Reformed theologian Emel Brunner speaks of God's judgments upon us as God's resistance. Against the pressure of our sin, God applies a counter-pressure. God's resistance to our evil tends to be to be considered by us in our evil as a wrathful injustice, but considered as a mechanism of our redemption, it is love. This God is not only righteous, but also loving, loving us enough never to leave us to our own devices. So what picture do we see when we look at ourselves through the eyes of Amos. It's not a pretty one, folks. As in his day, institutions and individuals alike are all too susceptible to the lure of wealth and power, and those in power often prioritize personal and professional gain over caring for those in need and seeking the welfare of all. Likewise, much of the energy and resources of the church are spent in maintaining our institution rather than carrying out God's work. We are afraid to take the risk, and I include myself in this, to take the risk of moving out of our comfort zone, afraid to shake things up, afraid of losing what little we have, and in the process, we forget who and whose we are. And who are we? We are, my friends, the people of the resurrection, the followers of the one who suffered and died and rose again. In him and through him we have received the gift of forgiveness, the grace of God's love, the guidance of the spirit, and the promise of new life even in the face of death. And here's what I want you most to take away from today's scripture reading. God may indeed be holding up a plumb line to us, but that plumb line is Jesus. Being a Christian is not just about receiving forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. It's about living in that life right here and right now. And God has blessed us with one who shows us the way. This is both a gift and a challenge. For the life of Jesus is about God's justice as well as God's love. In Luke 4, we are told that Jesus was given the opportunity to read scripture as he worshipped in the synagogue at Nazareth. The text that he chose to read was from another Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, and it reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Though his claim that those words had been fulfilled in him would lead to rejection, Jesus was not afraid to make wave. 
On the contrary, like Amos before him, Jesus spoke truth to power, condemning those who favored the institution of the temple over the needs of the people in no uncertain terms. Just read Matthew 23. And his life was spent lifting up the poor, healing the sick, seeking justice for those who were outcasts, sharing the love of God, and calling others to do the same. Now, just as it is not always easy to build a wall that is truly vertical, so it is not always easy to do justice. Accepting Jesus as the plumb line by which we measure our lives requires us to ask how our policies and practices might inadvertently lead us to participate in injustice, to dare to take a close look at the limits of our compassion and to seek ways to engage in actions that promote justice, especially for the least among us, even when those ways lead us to disturb the status quo. Accepting Jesus as our plumb line also means that we need to do some serious praying about our lives and how they should be ordered and how this congregation should be ordered. Given our bishop's call for us to discern the new church we want to be, such prayers may be timely indeed. And well, there's no time like the present to begin, so I invite you now to join me in prayer. God of justice, God of love, help us to see in the harsh words of Amos the call to live in ways that give life and hope to others. Forgive us when we draw limits on our compassion and fail to respond to others' needs. By your grace, anoint us with your spirit and give us the courage, courage as we seek to align our lives with the life of Christ so that we too might bring good news to the poor, hope to captives, sight to the blind, and freedom to those who are oppressed. All these things we ask in the name of the one who is your very word to us, in the name of Jesus. Amen.